So I think I may have found the next great novelist of our time. I'm tutoring this little second grader on a weekly basis, and this kid has the craziest imagination. I'm almost afraid to ask him how was your weekend for the, the, the stories that I get from him. So last week we're reading a nonfiction book on chameleons and you know so it starts off like chameleons range in size from one inch to two feet long and he says that's not true. I said, well what do you mean it's not true? He goes I had a four foot long chameleon but I had to get rid of it because it ate my dog and I'm like now See, that, yeah, exactly. So normally, like early on in the year, I would have been like, what? What are you talking about? But I've learned that that would just take us down a rabbit trail far too, far too long for me to get back. So I just said, that's cool. Let's read the next page. <laughs> and then it goes on to say, well, it's, experts used to think that chameleons could blend in with their background, but now experts have shown that the chameleons only change color when they're afraid or anxious. And he goes, that's not true. Indulge me, why is this not true? He says, well, my chameleon that was four feet long blended in and looked just like the doghouse, and the dog ran right into its mouth. <laughs> right. Now, I've read this book about chameleons six other times with other kids throughout the years, but this one's memorable. It's the same exact book, the same plot. I mean, there was really no plot in a nonfiction book, but the same pages, the same pictures, the same words. And yet, it's the little details that were different. And this will forever shape the way I read the book about chameleons in the future, right? And that's a lot like life. I mean, since the beginning of time, what's been happening with life? People get born, and then they grow up, and they search for meaning, and they want a relationship, and they want to be known, and they look for food and water. It's all the same. Every generation is the same, except for the details. Technology is different. Fashion is different, thank goodness, and then sometimes it comes back. But I mean, all kinds of, it's the details that change, but the big storylines, the big plots stay the same. Biblical history is similar. In fact, in Genesis thus far, we have seen three different occasions where a patriarch goes to a foreign land, gets freaked out by a king, tells that king that his wife is his sister, and then God intervenes and for some weird reason blesses the patriarch far more than he deserves. Right? We've seen this three different times. Similar plot lines, but the details are different. And there's those nuanced details where the meaning often lies in the story. In our passage this evening, we're going to visit a familiar scene. In fact, as soon as I read it, you're going to say, wait a minute, didn't we just cover this a few weeks ago? It's going to seem like deja vu. But in the repetition of the big picture things, I want us to notice the details. And I suggest that it's in this divergence of details where God's message for us lies. Would you stand with me, please, as we read Genesis 19, 1 through 14. I'm sorry, Genesis 29, 1 through 14. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For it was from that well that they watered the flocks. Now, the stone on the mouth of the well was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, they would roll away the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep. And put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We're from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And he said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And look, here's Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered. 
Water the sheep and then go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered. And they rolled the stone from the mouth of the well. And then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. So then Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son. He ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. Then he re related to Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him about a month. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, on the surface it just seems like a repetitive story. Uh, different characters this time. And I pray that you would, you would reveal to us what it is that you're saying through your word. That you would open our hearts and our minds to receive you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your ministry of making the Word come alive and changing lives. Amen. You may be seated. So oftentimes, if not every time we read the Scriptures, there are multiple layers of meaning. And this evening we're going to look at three of those layers. There's probably many more. Uh, and the first layer, we're just going to approach this passage as it stands. You know, as it stands, as I just read that passage, we have a, a history, a vital history of the people of God, by the way, of which you and I are a part. We need this story to, to let us know how it is that the promise was passed from Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. How is it that Jacob finds his wife? How do they have kids? How does this thing pass through the line of patriarchs? And what we know is that last week we learned in chapter 28 that Isaac, Jacob's father, blessed him and sent Jacob away from their house because Esau, his brother, wanted to kill him. And Jacob starts heading north towards Haran, 500 miles away. And while he's on his way there, he camps out in the wilderness, makes a stone his pillow, and falls asleep. And during his sleep, Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the Creator, comes to him in a vision, a stairway from heaven, cue the Led Zeppelin, it's coming down out of heaven, and his presence is revealed to Jacob. He says, Jacob, I am going to multiply your descendants like the sands of the seashore. I am going to give you the land that I promised to Abraham and to Isaac. Basically, I'm passing the baton to you, Jacob. You are now the promise bearer. Jacob wakes up, worships God, and he heads on north. He ends up at the pasture lands outside of Haran, where his family's family is from. He ends up at a well, and there he encounters some shepherds. And these shepherds are kind of interesting guys. Um, they're not very hospitable, are they? In fact, it, the, the narrator tells us that Jacob ends up in the land of the sons of the east. And what have we learned thus far about Genesis and the east? Yeah, good things usually don't happen when people head east or people come from the east. It's just that's where Cain went, and ever since then, not good things. So we're alerted a little bit that something's awry here. And these shepherds, they're not very hospitable. In fact, God is a God of hospitality and generosity. 
And yet these shepherds, uh, they're not very welcoming to Jacob at all. He asks them questions and they give him very short, terse answers. They don't offer him a roof over his head or any food or water. Furthermore, an ancient reader would probably pick up on the fact that these shepherds are lazy. It's not even the time to gather around the well. Like they're supposed to be out grazing. And they're just hanging out, like kind of like an office environment and people wasting the company's time at the water cooler, gossiping. They're, they're at the ancient water cooler. They're at the well. They're not doing anything. It's not time to be there. Well, just then, as Jacob is talking to these shepherds, they say, hey, look, here's Laban's daughter, Rachel. And he looks, and later on from the, uh, from the scripture, we know that she's beautiful. And Jacob sees this girl. There's one problem. These dudes are all there, and he wants to talk to her. Hey, why don't you guys go take your sheep and pasture them and, and, and then come back? Well, it's not time to do that. Well, why not? See, in the ancient world, there were two types of wells. One was dug very deep, a cistern type of well that collected rainwater because oftentimes in the arid season, there would be no rain. So you'd have to collect water during the rainy season and then use that during the arid season. The other type of well is a living well where you'd have spring water coming up. It's the best kind of water. It's fresh and there's a a fairly consistent supply. This was a cistern type well. And probably what would happen is a family group, cousins and everything, would join it together and dig this well. And they'd want to protect it. So they'd put a heavy stone over the top of it. That would protect it from, of course, impurities, but also from other people using it. And in case Cousin Randy wanted to come and water his sheep secretly at nighttime, they also made this stone very big and large so that the whole family or most of the family would have to be there to move it. It was a community affair, so that way everyone got the same amount of water ration. So, they're not leaving. And Jacob likes a girl. And what do guys do when they like girls? Well, Tommy, I think you jumped through a chandelier or something crazy like that, but... Yeah, you can tell that story later. Uh, we do crazy things and we try to impress. And Jacob, being the wrestler, being this, the strong man, he comes over and he moves the stone by himself. Nothing short of a superhuman feat. He waters Rachel's flock and then he kisses her in a customary kind of way, I think. <laughs> Tells her who he is and he weeps. He's just so overjoyed. I mean, can you imagine... Being so lonely, going through the wilderness, he had to leave his birthright behind because he's on the run for his life. And he ends up at the the right place, at the right time, actually at the wrong time. And there's Rachel, and he's just, I think he's just overjoyed to see her. Rachel, of course, runs and tells her father Laban what's going on. Laban comes back. I'm going to tip my hand a little bit for next week. I think Laban is impressed with Jacob's strength. So this is a guy who could do a lot of work for me. So he brings him in. Brings him into his house and, well, you know the story. Now, let's consider a second layer of meaning. If it was just layer one, it still belongs in the Bible. It shows a lineage. It shows God's faithfulness. I mean, that's a good story by itself. But let me suggest another layer of meaning. This is the second time in five chapters in Genesis that we have seen a man traveling to a foreign land, looking for a wife, stopping at a well, and meeting his wife. Does that not strike you as a little bit 
Interesting. Okay. In fact, if you are a biblical person, you might even think ahead to Exodus chapter 2. There we have a, a man named Moses who leaves Egypt. He goes to a foreign land. He ends up at a well, and he meets his wife there. Isn't this crazy? So three times in like two books of the Bible, we've got foreign guy or guy going to foreign land, stopping at well, meeting wife, and doing superhuman feats of strength. In Moses' case, he fends off all these shepherds single-handedly using his Egyptian ninja skills. And, and there, yeah, there are seven girls there, but he picks uh, Zipporah for his wife. Hmm. A well. That's interesting. Just as I mentioned reading the book about chameleons several times, same book, same setting, same plot, different details. So here, same setting. In fact, same families involved is chapter 24 where we have Abraham sending his servant to Haran. And yet the details carry the meaning. You see, in chapter 24, Abraham sends his servant to find his son Isaac a wife. The servant comes with a whole train of camels, which were very expensive. It was odd to have domesticated camels in that world. It meant you had money, and they had gold, and they had all of this, this wealth. Plus, the servant had the status of his, of, his, of his master's name, Abraham. And so he comes to the well... And when he gets to the well, he prays that God would show him the right person that Isaac is supposed to marry. Then this beautiful girl comes, and he must think this could be it. He could have wooed her with all of his wealth, but what does he do? He waits and watches for her character. He waits for God to affirm his choice. In our story this evening, the well and the woman cause us to think back to that story in Genesis 24. But the details are different. Jacob comes in with nothing but himself. Because he's on the run, he left all of his wealth behind. Jacob is a man used to relying on his own resources, his cunning, his strength. He doesn't pray. And in fact, he sees what he wants. And he's a man of action. He just moves the stone and kisses the girl. Basically moves him the house. Now, I want to suggest that one of the keys to our passage is the word stone. Alright? Can you say the word stone? In Hebrew, it's eben. Can you say eben? Alright, now you know Hebrew word for stone. Eben. In chapter 28, there is a stone. Stones play play prominently in that chapter. In chapter 29, we see the word stone used four times in ten verses. The difference is how they're used. In chapter 28, Jacob is on the run. He lays his head on a stone in the middle of the wilderness. It almost screams at you with the direness of his situation. He's got nothing. He's got no one. He's out on the wilderness. No tent to cover his head, and he's sleeping on a stone. That cannot be comfortable. And it's in that context that God reaches out to this desperate, lonely man and reveals himself, his his love, his countenance, his presence, and passes on the promise. And then what does Jacob do? He recognized the awesomeness of this experience, and he sets up a tower of stones as an act of worship, as an act of remembrance. What's the Hebrew word for stone? 
Eben, Eben, right. And a stone of remembrance that is an Ebenezer. I know you just thought that was a seasonal ale from Bridgeport, but no. It is a stone of remembrance. And so Jacob sets up an Ebenezer to remember God's unmerited favor and His grace. He had nothing. He was lonely. He was on the run and God reached down to him. So he worships about that. Now, Jacob leaves that experience, that mountaintop experience, that stairway to heaven experience. He is now going to Haran as a man carrying the promise of God, but he's not yet learned how to be a man of God. See, to Jacob, the mountaintop experience was wonderful, but now he's on his own. Or so he thinks. And what the narrator wants us to see is that Jacob arrives at this well at the wrong time. Shepherds should not have been there at this time. Therefore, Rachel arrives at an awkward time in the day when shepherds normally aren't there. Jacob doesn't even know where he is when he gets to the well until he asks, Hey brothers, where are you from? And they say, Well, we're from Haran. And he's like, Yes! I'm in the right spot. See... From our perspective, you can't help but see that God has been faithful to Jacob. He's guided him not only to the right place, but he's guided him there at the right time. His meeting with Rachel is is not coincidence. It's not fate. It is providence. God is in this. But where Abraham's servant prayed and asked God to enter into his search for a wife... Jacob does not. He sees all of this as coincidental. Abraham's servant had wealth and status. When he meets Rachel or um, when he meets Rebecca at the well, he could have wooed her immediately. With wealth, with status, hey, come marry my master's son, and you're going to have all of this. And could have very well happened that way. But he makes sure Rebecca's character is right. He makes sure that God is affirming the choice. But Jacob, he sees this whole situation as a problem that he has to solve. You see, if you believe that God is in control and that God is good, then that frees you up to be patient, to listen to Him, to wait on Him. But if you think that God only shows up at mountaintop experiences or in Bible studies or at church, but He's not really in the rest of the stuff of life, then it's going to cause you to think differently about how you live. It's going to cause you to think that it all depends on you, that you've got to take control and responsibility of everything because no one else is looking out for you. Instead of seeing the stone as a marker of God's providence and guidance, Jacob sees the stone on top of the well as something he needs to manage and control and remove. His mom, Rebecca when the servant came, used an impressive amount of strength to water all of his camels, hundreds of gallons of water. In fact, Robert Alter calls it a Homeric feat, as you know, referencing Homer in, the, in those amazing stories. Well, here in our story, her son Jacob does an amazing superhuman thing in removing the stone. It's fun to read sometimes a Jewish midrash, that is, stories that are written about Scripture later on in history. Uh, one of the midrashes calls uh, Jacob a giant. Another one says he had superhuman strength because he loved Rachel so much. Whatever the reason or the ability, he does this thing thinking, I've got to take control and seize this coincidental 
moment. What he doesn't know is that the Savior of the world would be born through the line of Judah, who is the son of the woman he would actually marry first, Rachel's sister Leah. He couldn't know that at this time. He can't know what we know. In his mind, God is not interested in the details. And so he's a man who grasps and seizes for control. So let's talk about stones for a minute. The way I see it, challenges in our lives are always opportunities for God to refine our character. The question is not, is God with us? But are we with God? Are we inviting God into our challenges, into our situation? Are we open to Him working in us and through us? Or is life merely just an act of survival? Now, I know in in our heads we think, oh yeah, God is with us and we pray about stuff. But really, the way we really live, don't we often live as though it's all up to us? For many of us, in fact, moving stones, overcoming obstacles, grasping for control, these stances on life have become what define us. It begs the question, if I'm not in control, if I'm not achieving things in my life, who am I anymore? How do we learn to live by faith like Abraham's servants instead of by sight like Jacob? Here's an interesting thing. So I, you know, I wrestle with this tension of control and faith. And so this, this afternoon, actually, I got a text from Pastor Rick who, you know, they, we rent this church building from them. He says, oh, by the way, the heat is not working in the auditorium today. It's 40 degrees in there. So we had to change worship into the fellowship hall. So it's like 1242 I get that text. I'm like, okay. Immediately, I start to get... What are we going to do? Contingency. Call Nathaniel. He's leading worship today. And Nathaniel's so cool about it. He's like, oh, this will be great. We'll do a cappella in there. It's going to be so fun. I think he's actually disappointed that we're in here today. Uh, anyway, so I just, my heart starts beating faster because I feel responsible. I've got to call all the, the different people and make sure that stuff happens. And I was thinking about this message. I thought, Lord, come into this situation. Come into this situation. This is, we are going to worship you either in this room or in that room or somewhere. Maybe we're in a circle singing Kumbaya. I don't care. We're going to worship you. Will you help that to be okay with me? And I started breathing a little bit easier. And it was awesome the repairman fixed this place. <laughs> so, so we have some heat. How do we learn to live by faith like Abraham's servant, instead of by sight and our own wits, like Jacob. I think that one of the primary ways we learn is through reflection, through remembering. The Bible is constantly telling us to remember. We have these narratives, these stories throughout Scripture that when you read them, you have to remember that God has been faithful. We have the Psalms that basically take these narratives and put them to song and you start singing about God doing great things. You have the Gospels that are constantly saying... He who has ears, let him hear. The Gospels are constantly telling us, look! And then there's the epistles that just straight up tell you, remember, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked, but now you are alive in Christ. Remember, 
You used to be separate from Christ, but now you are made one with Him. Remember, remember. Can you remember an event, a challenge that you overcame and got through in your life? Is it possible that God was the one who was with you that whole time? That God helped you to overcome? That God was with you? And that that challenge and God helping you to overcome is an opportunity to praise Him. In the old days, people would raise up stones of of remembrance, Ebenezer's. And so what I thought might be a a helpful object lesson would be to give us our own stones of remembrance. So I asked Charles and some of the folks to come forward and and pass these out. You're going to want to use two hands when you pass these because they're, well, they're rocks. And you can take your, your Eben and turn it into an Ebenezer. Maybe if you have big pockets, you can carry it around. Don't put it in the same pocket with your phone. I don't think the warranties cover that. Set it on your desk. Set it somewhere where you see this so that when you're going through times that cause you to be anxious, you can look at this and say, God is with me. How can, how can you invite God into your situation? How can you turn a, a time of trial into a time of seeing God with you and turning it into an event to remember His faithfulness by? Now I admit, taking this story about a patriarch who, by the way, had a stairway from heaven open up to him and God tell him, I am blessing you. Taking that story and then applying it to us and saying, oh, he's with us too, that's a stretch. That's a hermeneutical gymnastics, if you will. And wouldn't really be, I wouldn't really have a strong case to say that that's true if it weren't for this third level of meaning. I mentioned three biblical examples of Israelites looking for wives in foreign lands and meeting them at wells. But you and I both know there are four in the Bible. The Gospel of John talks about the Israelite Jesus from the line of Judah traveling to the foreign land of Samaria where he stops at a well and he meets a woman. Not only is this woman outside of the promised line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but she's despised by her own people. She's living with a man who's not her husband, and she had five husbands previously. She goes to the well at high noon on purpose. Nobody goes to the well in the heat of the day. All the other ladies from town, the ones gossiping about her and calling her bad names behind her back, they go in the cool of the morning. They go in the cool of the evening. But this woman's trying to avoid people. And she goes in the scorching noonday sun. And Jesus is there. Not only is he Jewish, not only is he a man, not only is he a rabbi, he breaks all of these codes by talking to this foreign woman. And he offers her something. Living water. Now all of this might seem like coincidence. You might think it just is coincidence unless John had recorded these very words. Listen. The woman replied to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. 
where then will you get that living water? You are not greater than Jacob, our father, are you, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and cattle. Think of Jesus' original audience. Mostly Jews or God-fearing Gentiles, people who knew the scriptures. You're raised on these stories. And you hear this story referencing Jacob and a well. Are you serious? He's bending the rules more than a four-foot chameleon that eats dogs. I mean, this well, the woman, the man in the foreign land, how can you not, as a, as a you know, biblical person, someone raised on the Scriptures, be thinking Genesis 24, Genesis 29, Exodus 2, what's going on here? Oh my goodness. This is not a Scorsese film either where Jesus has a wife. Jesus is opening up the promise. The offer of redemption and adoption into the family of God to the Samaritan woman. And by the way, if for her, then for us as well. Jesus went to that well to find a bride, but not in a Samaritan woman, but in all people who would come to him by faith. His bride is the church. Amen. Right? His bride is the church. He went to that well to open up his arms to outsiders. Now you and I can be people of the promise. And this is good news because Jesus is the one who moves the stones of unbelief. You and I get anxious maybe about a lot of little things in life. Where are we going to live? What should we do with our lives? How do we follow Jesus in this context? We lose people. We get sick. We have... Frustrating kids sometimes. Those are all causes for anxiety. But the biggest stone in all of our lives is the stone of faith. We cannot get there by ourselves. So when you encounter a stone of challenge in your life, won't you invite Jesus into that situation? See, when stones are obstacles in our life, we trip over them. We trip over them. But when we invite Jesus, He becomes the cornerstone of our life itself. When stones become obstacles that we have to manage by our own wits and by our own strength, we end up breaking our backs. But when we invite God into our situation, He turns stones into things that, that slay giants. When stones are obstacles we are responsible for, they become tombs of death. But when we invite Jesus into our, our situation, His resurrection power rolls the stone away. And you can't keep that life down. Amen? Right? When we make our lives about managing and controlling stones, we build walls to keep people out and temples to keep our gods in. When we invite Jesus into our situation, we become living stones, houses of the holy. When we spend our time and our energy, our worship, obsessing over the stones in our path, our hearts become like stones. You and I become like that or like whom that we worship. But when we invite Jesus into our situation, He turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He became flesh, and He died, and He rose. To give us new life. Will you invite Jesus into your situation afresh? 
into your anxiety, into your sin, into your shame, into your joys, and into your sorrows. Invite Him in and allow Him to reign in you. Let's pray. Jesus, all of that sounds great. But I can't help but have my mind wander to what our world calls reality. Lord, we live in this strange tension where we're told to be independent, to do it ourselves, to make something of our situation, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And yet, you tell us to trust, to listen, to lean on you. Lord, help us to be men and women who are engaged in our world, who have the vitality and passion of Jacob, but who are guided by you and your spirit. Lord, when we are lost, help us to have the sense to wait on you, to trust that you will guide us when the time is right. Lord, I pray for those carrying heavy loads. Maybe it's tough decisions to be made. Maybe it's a load of, of shame. Lord, help us to, to give those things over to you. To trust you for forgiveness. To trust you for the outcome. To let you actually be God. Instead of just singing about you being God. Or saying the words that you are God. Lord, be God in the way that we act and submit to you. Amen.